1566 was the last year it would be known as Santa Maria Magdalena de Buquivaba. The community, which sits about 50 miles south of the U.S. border at Nogales, and today boasts around 23,000 residents, had been a small Odom village known to the Spaniards since at least the time of Coronado as Buquivaba. Through the work of Spanish missionaries, the settlement along the Magdalena River would boast a church complex in the late 16th and early 17th centuries, dedicated to the Virgin Mary. Revolts by members of the Seri tribe in 1757 and again in 1776 would all but destroy the original church and kill off the Europeans living there. But this was the height of the Spanish occupation of North America, and more settlers would be back. More missionaries came and a new church was constructed. The settlement became known as Santa Maria Magdalena de Buquivaba. In the early 20th century, it was officially incorporated as a Mexican town. In 1965, and again in 1966, a group of researchers from Mexico's National Institute of Anthropology and History, as well as the Arizona State Museum, came to the area to explore the town's past. In May 1966, they announced the discovery of a long-lost grave near the old church site, the figure buried in a simple wood coffin with a bronze crucifix on his chest. This set off a flurry of activity, including the demolition of several buildings to make way for a proper mausoleum. And of course, a name change. Recognizing the importance of the find, Santa Maria Magdalena de Buquivaba became what we know it as today, Magdalena de Quino. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 7, The Padre on Horseback. To understand the importance of this find and the flurry of activity it caused, we have to go back to where we left off last week. If you remember, we discussed the financial cost to settle in North America, it was massive, and the reward actually coming back to the Spanish treasury, it was non-existent. We also talked about the encomienda system and the few attempts by the crown to rein in the corrupt and abusive practice. Today, we're going to introduce more fully the other side of the coin, the missions. Because the comprehensive ordinances for new discovery of 1572 gave a shot in the arm to the Catholic missionaries. Remember, those are the orders from King Felipe II that aimed to be a bit more humanitarian and outlawed the word conquest. With conquest now literally outlawed, it would be up to the peaceable servants of God and the Pope to oversee the more gentle, let's call it pacification, of the native population. But as you may have noticed, Franciscan friars have been around in the New World since the beginning. Funny story, the Spanish at first doubted the natives they encountered were fully human or even had souls. The question was important enough that Pope Paul III had to issue a bull in 1537 stating that yes, the natives had souls and were fully capable of understanding and, more importantly, accepting the Catholic faith. With that, the Franciscans flooded into the New World with a vision to save these poor savages and reshape their culture to serve God and the king. After a few decades in Mexico, however, the crown decided to replace the order with a secular or diocesan priest. It was essentially, like most of the crown's decisions, a cost-saving move. The secular priest could collect tithing and would be tasked with making the missions in New Spain self-sufficient. Remember that the Franciscans exist on a royal subsidy that slowly drained the treasury without really putting anything back in. 
so the Franciscans looked toward the frontier as the next place to continue their mission. Once among the pueblos in New Mexico, they tried to win over the hearts of the people in several different ways. First was to use all the trappings and pageantry that Catholicism had to offer in order to awe their potential converts. Second was to freely give gifts of glass beads, hatchets, scissors, knives, and clothes. According to the social conventions of the time, this created a sense of obligation among both the Spanish and the natives. Third was to target both leaders and children. The former, based on their European-centric way of thinking, would help bring the rest in line. The latter were seen as more malleable and able to help convert others. The friars also inserted themselves into already established villages. Once entrenched, their residence became a cabacera, a head town or headquarters, and outlying settlements were visitas, where they would routinely visit on a circuit. Since the Pueblo peoples of New Mexico already lived in congregated villages, the Spanish didn't have the same problems they had in other parts of the empire of trying to congregate semi-nomadic tribes into agrarian settlements they called reducciones, or reductions. That term, by the way, manages to sound, in my opinion, even more condescending than the later American term, reservation. And at first, things seemed to go great. The native population began to, at least on the surface, adopt Christianity. This new religion seemed to offer several benefits. The most evident is the friars brought gifts and access to Spanish goods, and hey, everyone loves free stuff. These friars also appear to be powerful shamans that promise access to the heavens for the natives' benefit. As one source pointed out, the strange diseases that were ravaging the native population seemed to spare these followers of the Christian god. Adding to this mystique was the fact that the armored soldiers all bowed down to the friars in their simple brown robes. Finally, those friars often protected the natives from the brutal excesses of those same soldiers. Many priests of the time were adamant about keeping the rough frontier settlers with their brutality, rape, and generally overall bad example of Christian conduct away from their new converts. We're mainly talking about New Mexico here, but the Franciscans spread their influence into Northeast Arizona, arriving at the Hopi Mesas in 1629. By 1641, there were visitas set up across several of the mesas. However, although they used the same playbook as elsewhere and had friars assigned to the area, the Hopis were never quite sold on Christianity. In 1633, only four years after the friars' arrival, Father Francisco de Porras was apparently poisoned at the Hopi village of Awatuvi. However, despite that one uh, hiccup, the friars were entrenched by the mid-17th century. But the good times, as they say, could not last. Beneath the surface, a crazy amount of tension was building. When the Franciscans set up shop in a native village, they began construction on churches. And who do you think were made to build these churches? That's right, the locals. According to the traditions of the culture at the time, the men would be assigned to carpentry tasks while the women toiled to build the actual adobe structure. And while they preached free choice in accepting Christianity, the friars quickly turned to force should a new convert decide to make the wrong decision of stepping away from the new faith. Add to this that, despite royal orders saying the Franciscans needed to learn local languages, quite a few never did or only sort of, kind of picked up the local dialects. Many of the core concepts of Christianity were difficult to translate into native languages, and some friars never made that much effort to try. 
Also, depending on the friar, they could be brutal in their suppression of native religions. Many took the stance that all local customs were a form of devil worship. They then proceeded to go to great lengths to ridicule, confiscate, and destroy any symbols or practices associated with worship the natives have known since time immemorial. Finally, the friars couldn't entirely stop the spread of other settlers and the establishment of the oppressive encomienda system. It should be no surprise then that we find revolts among various Pueblo tribes across New Mexico in 1632, 1639, 1644, 1647, and 1650. And those are just the ones we know about. But then comes 1680. This is the big one. I want you to imagine all the tension simmering below the surface we just discussed and ask yourself, what could make it worse? How about a couple of decades of lower rainfall and higher than usual temperatures starting around 1660? Or how about the drought conditions bringing a greater amount of raiding and pillaging by the Apaches and other tribes? And what if the Pueblo population kept dying off from European diseases, falling to below 20,000 in 1680, roughly half of what had been estimated to have been 40 years beforehand? And, just for argument's sake, what if some of the Pueblos turned back to native practices to deal with these hard times and were once again met with a new round of Spanish oppression? Well, what do you think? All that couldn't possibly, oh, I don't know, set someone on a path to end this oppressive occupation once and for all? Enter Pope, a man from the Tua people at San Juan Pueblo. He's often described in the sources as a medicine man or some kind of religious leader. He's also one of those who are caught by the Spanish practicing his people's native faith. The authorities chose to have him and others whipped, though Pope was not killed. And despite the fact that the floggings continued, morale definitely did not improve. Following this crackdown, Pope went into hiding at a far-flung settlement. There he set himself to planning and coordinating an uprising unlike anything the Pueblo tribes had attempted before. Pope and his conspirators sent out messengers to more than two dozen settlements, invoking the name of traditional deities to forge a broad coalition. This is no mean feat as we're talking about coordinating a large-scale uprising across hundreds of miles and several different language barriers. To time everything correctly, these messengers carried with them knotted cords. Each day, a knot was untied. When there were no more knots, it was time to strike. Evidently, the Spanish did receive warnings that something was underfoot by sympathetic pueblos. One source even claims messengers and their knotted ropes were captured. The conspirators took this in stride and simply advanced the day. On August 10, 1680, the pueblos rose up. Most of the Spanish settlers were taken completely by surprise as the natives everywhere pillaged, sacked, and burned settlements up and down the Rio Grande. One story even has the governor of New Mexico dispatching a trusted Pueblo to calm a group that was on the fence about joining in the rebellion. That trusted Pueblo then returned to Santa Fe riding a horse, armed for war, and leading a vengeful group against the occupiers. Spanish buildings were razed, Spanish crops were burned, and Spanish churches? The contemporary accounts from the terrified settlers all agreed that special hatred was exacted upon anything Christian. Items were stolen and or defiled. Numerous people reported the Pueblos mockingly reciting Catholic prayers while the churches burned. They killed 21 of New Mexico's 33 missionaries, making sure to mock, 
torment and beat them first. In future Arizona, all four missionaries among the Hopis were killed. But the friars weren't the only ones targeted. Men, women, and children in their homes and fields were not spared. It's reported that 400 were killed over the next couple weeks. The terrified masses who weren't outright murdered were allowed to flee south to El Paso for safety. But they had done it. Pope and his rebellion had driven the Spanish away. And this rebellion really rocked the empire. It was the first time they'd been forced to flee by native tribes. And it would be more than a dozen years before the Spanish would timidly once again venture north to test the mood of the natives. Unfortunately, the cohesion and collaboration that made the Pueblo revolt a success did not last. There was a deep division among them about whether to expect the Spanish to return or join with Pope and the hardliners to cut out everything Spanish from their lives and mock the Europeans and their traditions. Pope himself, who seems to have gone on a bit of a congratulatory lap around various settlements in the wake of the victory, continued to instruct the people to destroy everything Spanish. However, he seems to have fallen from power in the years following the revolt and was dead by 1688. And by 1693, the Spanish would be back in New Mexico. For the Hopis on their mesas, however, the revolt effectively ended Spanish interference. Never again would they allow missionaries to stay. When one village attempted to convert again in 1700, other Hopis had the settlement destroyed. The Franciscans would make eight more attempts to reestablish Christianity on the mesas, but were always rebuffed. With the way eastward from New Mexico into Arizona now cut off, missionaries would now be forced to come up from the south. By sheer historical coincidence, and as a blessing to history podcasters looking for a convenient segue, the date of the Pueblo Revolt, August 10th, 1680, also happened to be the 35th birthday of the man who would come to define the missions of southern Arizona. I am, of course, talking about none other than Father Kino. All right, I have thrown a lot of names at you over our short time together, and why I do hope you remember some of our players so far I don't expect you to remember most of them, but Eusebio Francisco Kino is one you are going to want to write down because I assure you, he will be on the test at the end. Kino, unlike virtually everyone else in our narrative up to this point, was neither from the Iberian Peninsula or the New World. He was born in 1645 in the village of Segno near Trent, Italy, which was then part of the Austrian province of Tyrol. He had a keen mind for mathematics and studied at the universities of Ingolstadt and Freiburg in southern Germany. The turning point in his life came in 1665, when he was 20. We don't have many details, but Kino became seriously sick, like reevaluate all your life priorities sick. Kino himself does not name the disease, only saying that after talking with physicians, he despaired for his life. He credited his eventual recovery to his patron saint, Francisco Javier, and decided to turn his attention to holier matters and entered the Jesuit order. This is where he also added Francisco as a middle name. He could have had a successful career as an educator and tutor, given his proclivity toward mathematics and the Jesuits' strong emphasis on education. But a call had gone out from across the ocean for missionaries to come and help preach in the New World. So, turning down a university professorship, Kino set out in that direction. The Jesuits, properly the Society of Jesus, 
had been given the blessing of the Pope as a Catholic order in 1540 and were in the New World by 1571. That year, eight Jesuits had made a stab at converting natives in the area of Chesapeake Bay. This brief attempt ended when the would-be converts turned around and killed the erstwhile missionaries. The order then turned its attention to New Spain as another hotbed for conversions. The Jesuits had wanted to head up into New Mexico, but the Franciscans had beaten them to the punch. In 1650, an agreement was reached between the Jesuits and the Franciscans, which solidified that the latter would have New Mexico all to itself, but that the Jesuits would lay claim to the Pimaria Alta. The Pimaria Alta, literally the upper land of the Pima, covered most of the current Mexican state of Sonora, along with the southern portion of Arizona and Baja California. The only challenge now was finding people to come minister to the various Odom tribes who lived in this desert land. Because though the Jesuit order numbered some 17,000 by 1680, most were content with the life of being educators of, or confessors and spiritual directors for, the elite of Europe. To cast the widest net possible for recruits, the order received permission from the Spanish crown to issue passports for foreign Jesuits, mostly from the Habsburg-controlled parts of the Holy Roman Empire, since a branch of the Habsburg royal family now sat on the throne of Spain. In theory, only one-third of the missionaries sent to the New World could be from outside the Spanish Empire, but the Jesuits found that they needed to, let's say, fudge that a bit in order to ensure a steady supply. That's how the 32-year-old Kino, who had taken holy orders in 1678, was drawn to the New World, and why he traveled under a passport that described him as Eusebio de Chavez, quote, a native of Cordoba, 21 years old, well-built, dark-complexioned, wavy black hair, end quote. One of the great ironies of Kino's life is that his desired field of service was never really where he had the most impact. In fact, originally he desired to be sent to China, following in the footsteps of another notable missionary from Trent to whom he was distantly related. The only reason he did not proceed to the Orient is because he and another missionary drew lots and Kino lost. Just getting to the New World was tough enough. He and 18 other Jesuits set sail from Genoa to Spain in April 1678. They were delayed due to inclement weather and unfavorable winds and missed the transit to the New World. In 1679, the Jesuits turned down one fleet heading to New Spain because first it was stopping on the west coast of Africa to gather in black slaves. The next year, the missionaries finally had passage, but the ship had not sailed too far before striking a rock and everyone had to be ferried back to Cadiz. Some missionaries were able to find other passage later in 1680, but several, including Kino, remained behind. It was during the winter of 1680-1681 that Kino would observe a comet visible in the sky for several months. He would later produce a pamphlet about this comet that would mark him as an intellectual heavyweight to the upper ups in New Spain. Finally, after years of delays and setbacks, he was able to set sail from the New World in January 1681, arriving in May of the same year. With having lost China to his companion and his superiors recognizing his mathematic and scientific skills, in 1683, Kino was attached to a colonization attempt in Baja, California as the official cartographer and cosmographer. The expedition would twice try to set up settlements on the Baja Peninsula, but would meet all sort of logistical trouble, including supply shortages, working animal deaths, and crop failures. Even relations with the local Amerindians, which were initially positive, 
soured very shortly after arrival. The only upside is that Kino and others made the first land crossing across Baja California to the Pacific Ocean. There he would find a type of blue, bowl-sized abalone shell, which I promise will become important to our story. The expedition was pretty much a failure overall, and concerns elsewhere in New Spain caused the entire project to be scuttled. Kino never did let go of California, though, and would be continually seeking more explorations and colonizations there. In the aftermath of the failed expedition, he was back in Mexico City still arguing for it to be continued. Alas, it was not to be, and in early 1687, he was reassigned to the Pimeria Alta. And this is where he stops being just another Jesuit missionary and really becomes Father Kino. Making a base at the native village of Cosari, he had a mission built called Nuestra Señora de los Dolores. From there, he would travel and conduct missionary and explorative work for the next 24 years. In 1690, an inspector from the Jesuit order was sent north to check up on Kino. This was no friendly visit. Kino had requested four more Jesuit missionaries to work with the Pima, which upset the local ranchers and mine owners. It seems Kino had carried with him the bad news of a recent decree that newly baptized natives were exempt from a labor levy being imposed on them. Kino's zealous preaching then was restricting their labor pool, so they sent false reports that the natives actually hated the missionaries and were fleeing from them. The investigator was another Italian-born Jesuit named Father Juan Maria de Salvatierra, who arrived at Dolores on Christmas Eve, 1690. To ease concerns, Kino arranged for a tour of the Pimaria Alta. It was during this tour in January 1691 that the two accepted the invitation of natives to come north to an area Kino had not yet visited. Crossing the international border just west of Nogales, the two unwittingly walked into Arizona. They would make their way along the Santa Cruz River, eventually making it to a place that sounded to them like Tumacacari. The ranchers and mine owners' complaints had backfired spectacularly. Not only did Salvatierra like Kino personally, but he absolutely loved what he saw. Not only would no missionaries be taken out of the Pimaria Alta, he decided, but another four would be sent as well. Salvatierra's glowing report of 1691 would not be the end of Kino's troubles. Four years later, reports were filtering back that the Pimaria Alta was uninhabitable and that the Odom people there were as indomitable as the Apaches. In 1695, a minor revolt rose up that resulted in the murder of one of the priests Kino had personally installed. Detractors inside and out of his order made moves to remove him from the Pimaria Alta. To combat this, Kino traveled to Mexico City to meet personally with the outgoing viceroy. He also sent a biography he had compiled of the martyred priest to the Jesuit general Tirso Gonzalez in Rome, along with glowing descriptions of the Pima Rialta and the link it could provide to California. These efforts worked, and Gonzalez in particular wrote to the Jesuit administrators in New Spain to dismiss any charges that Kino had been reckless or superficial in his work, or that he had been severe with his fellow missionaries. With this trouble now fully behind him, Kino returned to work. The numbers from his time in the Pimaria Alta are nothing short of impressive. By one estimate, he made at least 14 trips into Arizona. Six of them took him as far as the present sites of Tumacacri, Tucson, and Benson. Six others took him as far as the Gila River, along a variety of routes. 
he would set up dozens of visitas and missions. They counted somewhere above 20 and probably closer to 25, including at Guevavi near the current international border and San Javier del Bac. However, the impressive church that stands just south of Tucson today unfortunately dates from after Kino's time. On one of the trips up the Gila in 1694, he was shown, quote, a four-story building as large as a castle and equal to the largest church in these lands of Sonora, end quote. Close to it were, quote, 13 smaller houses, somewhat more dilapidated, and the ruins of many others, which makes it evident that in ancient times there had been a city here, end quote. He had also heard reports of seven or eight more ruined cities further to the north, east, and west, which he felt sure were the seven cities that Friar Marcos de Niza had been after. It's in Kino's writings, then, that we find the first European reference to the Hohokam settlement that still goes by the name he gave it, the Casa Grande. As part of all this journeying, Kino had the endurance of a cowboy. On his visits, he would ride on horseback for hundreds of leagues, sometimes at the average of 25 to 30 miles a day. On one trip, he rode 3,084 leagues, maybe a little more than 1,000 miles in today's measurements, in just 26 days. That's an average of 40 miles a day, and this is in 1700 when he was in his mid-50s. Now, I can say from personal experience that Kino's journals of all this are not the most scintillating reading in the world. However, going through them, you get a sense of all the work he put in. Nearly every entry is... Rode X number of leagues, stopped at this settlement, baptized this many children, celebrated mass, got up the next day, rode X number of leagues, stopped at this settlement, baptized this many children, celebrated mass, got up the next day, and you get the idea. The man was simply a force of nature. And understanding that we only have the Spanish accounts, Kino seems to genuinely have cared for his flock of Odin converts, including what the Spanish called Papagos, Pimas, and Subaipuris. None of the sources I have read had anything derogatory to say about his treatment of the natives. Rather, they say he was genuinely filled with joy when they expressed faith and came to be taught by Father Eusebio. In fact, in 1697, Kino was on the verge of being transferred to another attempt to settle California. This reassignment was blocked because others feared that the Pimas would revolt without his pacifying influence. Heck, in the same year, Kino even fired off a message and sent a cross to the Hopis in northern Arizona, inviting them back into the Christian fold. They never responded, but he had tried. Just to add to his accomplishments, he was not riding around with hundreds of soldiers and Amerindian allies like Coronado. Most of the time, he had less than two dozen people from Spain with him. Sometimes, he only had a couple trusted friends, and more than once, he rode with no other Europeans at all. And while the preaching and the baptizing is pretty impressive on its own, Kino also successfully started several cow and sheep ranches along the various missions and visitas under his jurisdiction. In the early 1700s, we find those attempting to settle California repeatedly asking him to send more cattle from his missions their way so they would not starve. And speaking of California, as I said, Kino never really let go of the idea of expanding the Spanish reach in that direction. On two occasions, he followed the Gila to its confluence with the Colorado and met with the Yumas, or Quechan people living there. During one of these visits in 1699, 
he was gifted large blue abalone shells, which he immediately recognized from his time spent in Baja, California, nearly a decade and a half before. See? I told you those blue shells would be back. After conversing with the natives at San Javier del Bac, he had learned that such shells could only be found at the sea, which fired his imagination about finding a land route to California. Trips in 1700 seemed promising, so in 1701 he set out from Dolores with Captain Juan Mateo Manje, a longtime riding companion, and a small company. En route, they were met by Father Salvatierra, and together proceeded on an overland route toward the Gulf of California, north of modern-day Rocky Point. The journey was a rough one, and at one point Kino mentioned sand dunes that were like 60 leagues across. But in March 1701, Kino, Salvatierra, and Manje were able to visualize the head of the Gulf of California. The next year, Kino would make another trip to visit the Yumas and would venture to the Colorado River Delta. From here on out, the maps he would draw would show Baja California as a long peninsula and not the island it had previously been. Kino and his travels had helped prove it. But wait, you say, didn't you tell us last week that some random NPC had discovered Baja California wasn't an island like 160 years ago? Well, yes, yes I did. And incredibly, both statements are accurate. You see, the Spanish had something of a map problem. The first wave of explorers were keen on seeking treasure, not accurately portraying the geographical locations of where they ventured. Most of the time, they were led to where Amerindian guides would take them, so they weren't following any sort of map. And when other explorers made their reports, those were sent back to the head office in Seville, where they would be added to a massive chart called El Padrón Real. But here's the kicker, and I really love this bit. The bigwigs in Seville were so paranoid about protecting their discoveries from other nosy European powers that they classified everything as a state secret. That's right. Nothing was redistributed back to the other sailors, soldiers, or leaders in the New World. So if you didn't personally know a friend of a friend in the Coronado expedition, then you had no earthly way of knowing about Cibola, Tiguex, or Quivira. Any maps coming out of Spain showing the interior of North America didn't match at all the geography that people living in New Mexico would recognize. And funniest of all, given the paranoia that created this problem, maps printed elsewhere in Europe were generally more accurate than the Spanish ones. The result of all this is that things tended to get quote-unquote discovered over and over again. This is why we call the city in California San Diego instead of the original San Miguel, or it's now the Colorado and Gila Rivers rather than Rio de Tison or Rio del Norte. For the record, this is also part of what makes it difficult to ascertain with 100% certainty what course some expeditions followed. When everyone is referring to landmarks by different names, it's hard to tell if a mountain or river someone references is the same mountain or river that two or 20 different expeditions had run across. As a side note to all this, and to bring things back full circle, Kino himself had been taught in his university studies that Baja California was a peninsula. It was only after coming into the New World that he suspected his professor had been wrong and that California had to be the biggest island on the face of the planet. This problem is not going away anytime soon, and more than four decades later, a 1744 royal decree to the Jesuits to keep expanding their influence into California says the land route is possible because, quote, 
are having discovered and ascertained that the province of the Californias is not an island as was commonly believed, end quote. After these discoveries, Kino put his nose back to the grindstone. There were a lot of missions to oversee and take care of after all, and he was doing it mostly by himself. He installed a priest at San Javier del Bac and Guivavi in 1701, but both became sick. One withdrew to recover while the other actually died. By 1703, there were no priests left living in Arizona, nor would there be for another two decades. As for Kino himself, in 1711, he was invited by Father Agustin de Campos to come to Santa Maria Magdalena de Buquivaba and dedicate a chapel to San Francisco Javier. Though he was 65 and suffering from terrible arthritis, Kino could not turn down a chance to thank the patron saint who had saved his life as a young man and led him to the Jesuit order. It was while celebrating Mass in the chapel that Kino took ill. And seeing as every other historian knows this, I should too. Campos asked Kino to rest more comfortably, but the old priest used the same bedding he had for more than 20 years while traveling the Pimaria Alta. That is, two calfskins for a mattress, two native-style blankets, and a pack saddle for a pillow. Eusebio Francisco Kino, the Padre on horseback, died shortly after midnight on March 15, 1711. Kino's legacy is one of the bright spots of Spanish history in the New World. Streets, schools, geographic features, and monuments across Arizona and Mexico are named for him. He's even the namesake for a particular type of copper silicate mineral, Kinoite. And Kino's is one of Arizona's two representative statues in the United States Capitol's National Statuary Hall. Other statues can be found in Tucson, along the appropriately named Kino Parkway, and in the plaza across from the state capitol in Phoenix. But perhaps the greatest honor for Kino is the one that's still in the works. In the early 2000s, a group began pursuing canonization to make him Saint Kino. Appropriately, they're hoping to make him the patron saint of international borders. Join me next time as we take a look at the Spanish effort to again push into the Pimaria Alta and continue Kino's efforts to go even further into California. We'll also explore how a young man who entered the New World a year after Kino's death and barely spoke a lick of Spanish and his son would be the driving force of that effort. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.